High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to return to our long-running series, The Many Loves of Howard Hughes. Previously in this series, we've discussed Hughes' relationships with his first wife, Ella Rice, his first real love, Billy Dove, Ida Lupino, who directed films for Hughes' RKO Studios decades after she dated him as a teenage starlet, and Katherine Hepburn, whose long relationship with Hughes dissolved in 1938, after which Hughes went looking for a Hollywood wife. He proposed to Olivia de Havilland, Joan Fontaine, Ava Gardner, Ginger Rogers, and others, but he didn't actually marry until 1957, and during that nearly 20-year gap, he formed what would become perhaps the longest-lasting relationship of any actress throughout the course of his life. That relationship was with Jane Russell. Jane Russell was not a romantic love of Howard Hughes, although, as we've seen previously, the actual romance quotient of any of his love affairs 
was questionable. The story of their relationship seems like a total Hollywood cliche. Skeevy producer mounts casting call, through which he selects essentially the biggest busted girl he can find. Said girl then becomes a superstar thanks to a publicity machine, even though the film she makes for the skeevy producer is notoriously awful. But Jane Russell's relationship with Howard Hughes was incredibly unique. In Hughes' life and in Hollywood on the whole, perhaps because Jane Russell was so unique. She was a sex bomb whose signature facial expression was one of disdain, but who was also the kind of song and dance gal for whom the camp gaze was essentially invented. She was a devout Christian who had no fear of sex, and with Hughes, she made a number of movies which helped to push the boundaries of what could be shown in Hollywood movies, ultimately helping to eat away at the Puritan censorship code. And most significantly, maybe, was that Jane Russell was a woman in Hollywood who wasn't afraid to say no to what she didn't want, nor was she afraid to ask for what she did want. And more often than not, she got it. Join us, won't you, as we explore the relationship between Howard Hughes and Jane Russell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight-or-flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash YMRT. In December 1939, Howard Hughes showed up at the Hollywood club The Trocadero for the after-party for the premiere of Gone with the Wind. One of the stars of the movie was Olivia de Havilland, Hughes's ex-girlfriend, who, having discovered that Hughes was simultaneously romancing her sister, Joan Fontaine, now wanted nothing to do with him. But that was fine, because Hughes wasn't there to see her. 
Hughes was looking for Russell Birdwell, the publicity genius who had conceived of the Search for Scarlet campaign, which had kept Gone with the Wind in the news for a full two years before the movie even premiered. Hughes found Birdwell flanked by two Hollywood queens, Norma Shearer and Mary Pickford. Hughes beckoned Birdwell, whom he had never met, to join him in a corner, out of earshot of the two ladies. I'm thinking about making a new motion picture, Hughes said. Would you be interested? I might be, Birdwell said. Hughes nodded. You may hear from me. Then he disappeared. Months later, a messenger brought a note to Birdwell's office that read, Mr. Hughes will see you tomorrow at 3 a.m. Hughes told Birdwell that he wanted to make a Western, the story of Billy the Kid with graphic violence and lurid sex right at the center. Hughes put Birdwell in charge of orchestrating a nationwide search for a new sex pot star. Hughes's office was soon inundated with 8x10 glossies of pretty girls. One day, Hughes picked one out of a stack featuring a brunette with the listed measurements of 38, 22, 36. Test this one, he said. This one was Ernestine Jane Russell, a receptionist who had all but given up on acting after a screen test at Fox, where she was told she was unphotogenic, and a meeting at Paramount, where she was told she was too tall. The photo that got Jane Russell in for a test with Hughes, the photo that would make her career, is no straightforward pinup. It had been taken by a photographer who had brought the 19-year-old beauty in to do some sports modeling, but this shot was framed to stop right under her string of double pearls. Her heavily made-up eyes are downcast, barely open. Her top teeth are bared, turning a half-pout into almost a sneer. This was no skinny, happy, compliant, early 40s starlet. This was trouble. This was Howard Hughes's physical ideal. Off-camera, Jane Russell wasn't so easily pegged. She grew up on a seven-and-a-half-acre ranch in the San Fernando Valley, the oldest of five kids. Her father had died, and her mother had become a born-again Christian when Jane was six. And as the actress would later describe it, the narrative of her life was defined by her deviations away from the path of God and her returns to the fold. In her personal life, she partied hard. Her autobiography is full of tales of evenings full of drunken antics. But she was also happily married for 20 years. And she loved being sexy, maybe in part because it hadn't always come so easily. Her mother had encouraged her to go to acting school because she thought it might cure Jane of being a tomboy. As a kid, she'd been so skinny and flat-chested that boys had made fun of her. She had idolized Katherine Hepburn, writing her a fan letter after seeing her as Joe in Little Women. Jane had started studying at the Max Reinhardt School on Sunset Boulevard in 1939, right out of high school. Mostly, she ditched classes to go bowling with a girlfriend. She quit that school, but soon found she couldn't shake the acting bug and enrolled in another drama school. This one taught by a little Russian woman who drank straight vodka out of a water glass all class long. It was all very low-rent L.A., strip mall striving. She lived with her mom and was basically just biding time until her boyfriend, Robert Waterfield, a football star at UCLA, got it together to get them to the altar. And then she got the call, demanding her presence at Howard Hughes' Hollywood headquarters. That was an invitation that no 19-year-old girl refused. But when Jane got there, Howard Hughes wasn't there. 
Howard Hawks, who was then slated to direct The Outlaw, was. Hawks explained to Jane that the character she was up for was a half-Irish, half-Mexican girl who tries to get revenge on Billy the Kid, who killed her brother, by attacking him with a pitchfork. In retaliation, Billy the Kid rapes her. We'll be testing Monday, Hawks said. So learn the scene and good luck. Jane practiced the scene with a Mexican-American girlfriend, mimicking the way her friend said the lines. At the audition, when she was finished, someone told Howard Hawks that the Russell girl spoke pretty good English for a Mexican. Russell was put under personal contract to Hughes at $50 a week. The filming of The Outlaw began in the spring of 1940, outside of Flagstaff, Arizona. They set up camp so far outside the city that every day, a convoy of food had to be brought in. The entire company, cast and crew, had been brought out from L.A. on a train, and on the weekends they would all ride together into Flagstaff to get drunk. Hawks didn't need Russell for the first half of the shoot, but she was kept busy on location thanks to publicist Birdwell, who had devised an extensive campaign to herald Jane Russell's arrival in Hollywood. She was photographed every day in costume. Look, life, photo play, peak. All of the magazines sent shooters out to get a look at the new girl. She did whatever the photographers asked, whether it was running, jumping, bending over to pick something up, bending over but not actually picking something up, just staying bent over, holding the position. She was so naive. She had no idea her cleavage would be on the cover of magazines for the next five years, emblazoned on movie posters above slogans like, Two Good Reasons for Seeing the Outlaw. One day, a photographer asked her to get in a nightgown and jump on a bed. She did it, but it made her feel rotten. When she went to Hawks in tears, he was hardly sympathetic. You're a big girl now and you've got to protect yourself, he said. If someone asks you to do anything that's against your better judgment, say no, loud and clear. You're in charge of you, no one else. It was invaluable advice, and Russell would take it. It was also the last piece of advice from Hawks that Russell would benefit from for a while. After a couple of weeks of filming, Russell Birdwell got a 1 a.m. call from Howard Hughes, summoning the publicist to Hughes' headquarters in Hollywood. Birdwell found Hughes in a screening room, watching dailies, having apparently been running the same footage over and over again for hours. Birdwell started watching with him, and at the end of a scene, Hughes was like, Didn't you notice something? Birdwell was like, Um, notice what thing? And Hughes was like, No clouds. Why go all the way to Arizona to shoot unless you're going to capture some beautiful clouds? The damn screen looks naked. Naked! This was an almost direct replay of what had happened over a decade earlier on Hell's Angels, the film Hughes had directed only after a number of other directors found they couldn't work with him. And sure enough, the next day, when Hughes called Hawks and told him he wanted to see more clouds on the screen, even if it meant going over schedule to wait for them, Hawks suggested that Hughes just finish the movie himself. Instead, Hughes ordered that production be shut down and the whole company sent back to L.A. Jane went back to her life, in the valley, with her God-fearing mom and football star boyfriend. Life was exactly the same as it had always been. Except now there are pictures of her in all the magazines, supposedly promoting a movie that had been stalled seemingly indefinitely. 
Months went by, and then Jane got a call from Howard Hughes himself. He had decided to take Howard Hawks's advice and start directing the outlaw himself. So they started again, this time shooting on sound stages on the Goldwyn lot in Hollywood, Hughes having apparently given up on the clouds. In L.A., Hughes could manage his aviation business during the day and shoot the movie at night. Hughes always wanted one more take, until the number of takes spilled into the dozens. His directions were always seemingly minor. Don't raise your left eyebrow when you say this line. Don't move your thumb. Don't lean too far to the right. He tried to tinker with the performances, as though actors were airplanes. He couldn't articulate what he wanted beyond gestures, but he could push the actors to do 100 takes until he got that indefinable something that he was looking for. Hughes's obsession with the physical extended to the most famous aspect of the Outlaws production, or really its promotion. Since becoming, as she put it, well-stacked at the age of 16, Jane Russell had worn custom-made bras. Howard Hughes felt that these bras were too visible under Russell's costumes. And they weren't even uh, holding up their part of the bargain. He complained, We're not getting enough production out of Jane's breasts. Hughes decided to use his expertise designing airplanes to engineer the perfect structural garment for Russell. His goal was to combine serious support with virtual invisibility. The no-bra look for girls too busty to not wear a bra. But when Russell tried on the prototype, she found it to be, as she put it later, uncomfortable and ridiculous. So she took off Hughes's bra and put back her own custom-made bra. But before she put on her blouse, Jane covered the visible seams with Kleenex. She went back on set without saying a word, letting Hughes think she was wearing his contraption under her costume. He nodded his approval, and they went on shooting. The shoot went on for nine months after Hughes took over. Then, after they finally wrapped, Jane Russell started reporting to Birdwell's publicity office on a daily basis to pose for stills. They brought her in every day, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, for two years. Candids, composed shots, costume shots, fashion shoots. She did a little bit of everything, but the more dressed up she was, the less comfortable she felt in her own skin. So the great glamour photographer George Harrell took photos of Russell reclining in a bale of hay or posing on a bearskin rug. Birdwell wanted to sell the story that Russell was a rags-to-riches success who was using her newfound Hollywood riches to support her siblings and single mom. She did live with her siblings and single mom, but in fact, with her salary still set at $50 a week, Russell could barely even support herself. But by the end of 1942, she had posed for at least 40,000 photos. And these photos made Jane Russell a star, a staple centerfold in first photo journals and then fan magazines, years before The Outlaw had its first open-to-the-public screening. But wait, if The Outlaw finished shooting in 1941, why was it not until February 1943 that the movie finally had its premiere? You could blame the censors. You could also blame Hughes himself, who was, as we shall see, quite distracted by his personal life. He was also beginning to show signs of the strange behavior which would mark the second half of his life. So, beyond the censors, it took two full years of sex, 
war, and mental and emotional collapse before the outlaw could have its day. And even that was something of a false start. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. The trouble started in the summer of 1941 when Howard Hughes met Faith Domergue, a 15-year-old actress on contract to Warner Brothers. The 35-year-old Hughes fell into something like love at first sight with this teenager. In October of that year, he asked her to marry him and to keep their engagement secret. When she agreed, they embraced, and he told her, You were the child that I should have had. He added, Remember, you belong to me now, so don't even look at another man. Hughes made good on his promise of ownership. He bought Faith's contract away from Warner Brothers and put the girl into a kind of ad hoc finishing school of his own design. She finished high school with tutors at Hughes's headquarters, where she also studied acting. A chauffeur would take her to her daily golf lessons, and personal shoppers at Bullock's made sure she had a full wardrobe of grown-up lady clothes. Only the best for the paramour for whom Hughes had given a revealing pet name. Little baby. He gave his little baby an added incentive to stay put by giving a number of her family members jobs. Then, two months later, came Pearl Harbor. And while his girlfriend was still finishing up her high school homework, Hughes jumped into action setting up military contracts for his tool and aviation companies. All the while, he was still editing The Outlaw, alternating between movie work and war work well into 1942. In August of that year, Hughes walked out of an editing suite and into a meeting in which he'd agree to build the largest aircraft of all time, out of wood. Hughes would call it Hercules. Everyone else would call it the Spruce Goose. Hughes pledged to have the giant plane ready within a year, a deadline he knew it would be absolutely impossible to meet. Howard tried to make up for his divided and diluted attention by buying faith things. Furs, cars, 
and eventually he even rented a new house in Bel Air to replace the gloomy Hancock Park mansion he had lived in since his first marriage in the 1920s. But he still found the time to have a lot of affairs. While engaged to Faith, Howard Hughes dated Rita Hayworth, Lana Turner, and most disastrously, Ava Gardner. Seemingly forgetting that he was already engaged, Hughes pursued Ava Gardner hard, in part because he figured she'd make the ideal wife, an arm candy wife. With his teenage girlfriend stashed away at home, Hughes would take Ava to all the clubs, all the parties, anywhere they were sure to be seen together. He was concerned enough about Ava's fidelity that he had her bedroom wiretapped, and at one point he broke in, hoping to find Ava in bed with her ex-husband, Mickey Rooney. When Ava told him she would not be spied upon, Hughes slapped her, and she thought to herself, I'm going to kill that skinny bastard. She grabbed a bronze antique that happened to be nearby and smashed it into Howard's head, and then she hit him with a chair. Blood trickling down his forehead, Howard passed out. His bodyguard secreted him to the hospital, and Faith was told some ginned-up story about how her fiancé had gotten into a car accident. But the real car accident was soon to come. One night, left home alone again, Faith went for a drive. And out of curiosity and suspicion, she decided to drive past Howard's old house in Hancock Park. And what should she see as she approached the old neighborhood but Howard's town car heading west. Howard and Ava had apparently forgiven one another, and they were inside the car. Faith started following them, and then she pulled up right beside them. She saw Ava in the passenger seat, and Howard saw Faith. He swerved into the parking lot of the farmer's market and stopped the car. Faith followed, and instead of stopping her car, she rammed her car into Howard's passenger door. And then she backed up and did it again. And then she backed up and did it again. Finally, Faith's car was destroyed and she had to stop. Miraculously, Ava Gardner came out of it unscathed. More miraculously, Howard managed to keep seeing both women, at least for a while. Meanwhile, Jane Russell had finally moved out of her family's home and into a house in the Hollywood Hills with a girlfriend, an actress named Carol Gallagher, who also occasionally dated Howard Hughes, although she claimed that on most of their dates, Howard would just make her watch footage of the outlaw. Like Jane, Carol was tall, blonde instead of brunette. The two went to a dressmaker and got identical outfits made, form-fitting suits, and then they'd both wear false hair down to their backs— They'd leave their sink full of dirty dishes and hit the town. Jane's certain that what her fiancé, Robert, didn't know wouldn't hurt him. We probably looked like a pair of hookers, Jane would later say. But we thought we were the living end. During this time, Jane, who was now 21, found out she was pregnant. Since football star Robert wasn't ready to get married, having the baby wasn't an option. She went to Glendale to get an abortion. The operation, as she put it in her autobiography, was hell. And on the first go-round, it didn't take. She ended up having to go through the procedure again, and she got a horrible infection and was laid up in bed for weeks, 
her mother praying at her side all the while. When she survived, Jane felt newly attached to God. Howard Hughes was wary of what was going on in his new star's personal life. He called Jane in for a meeting and warned her. He didn't want her to become one of those girls. Like, you know, one of those girls he had been amusing himself with for years. But the sheer fact that he cared about Jane's reputation meant that she wasn't like any other girl in Howard Hughes's world. As he was wont to do, Howard Hughes tinkered with his edit of The Outlaw for months. And when he finally had a cut he was happy with, the film was submitted to the Hayes office, the censorship board which was in the business of giving any film released by a Hollywood studio a seal of approval. Correspondence between the Hayes office and Hughes showed that the censors had been following the project for years and had complaints about the original script, in which Billy was a cold-blooded killer and there was no subtlety about his rape of Russell's character, Rio. After they screened a full cut of the film, the Hayes office informed Hughes that there was no way in hell they'd give it a pass. In a letter, censorship chief Joseph Breen outlined two specific complaints. There was the inescapable suggestion of illicit relationships between Russell's Rio and both Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday. And there were the countless shots of Rio in which her breasts are not fully covered. A big sticking point was a scene in which Rio, worried that a sick bed-bound Billy will die of chill overnight, starts to take off her clothes. In the morning, he's well, and the implication is that Rio's nakedness, which we never actually saw, was responsible for the healing. The letter declared that the office would not pass the film until, quote, all the shots of the girls' breasts where they are not fully covered are deleted entirely. The censors were apparently all the more incensed because they determined the movie to have little artistic value. And they weren't wrong. Hughes initially refused to make the cuts. He put the film away in a vault and tasked Russell Birdwell with turning the film's inability to pass the Hayes Code into news. Simultaneously, the sheer saturation of Jane Russell in print media at the exact time when the U.S. entered World War II was enough to turn the actress, who still hadn't been seen in a movie, into a pinup star, beloved enough by her public, a lot of them soldiers, that she received upwards of 10,000 fan letters a week. Birdwell figured out how to align the censorship stuff with the war stuff, Jane Russell was no longer some bad-attitude floozy with a bus to die for. She was a symbol of defiance and of the free world that the boys were fighting to save. And Howard Hughes was the American hero trying to liberate her from the oppressive censors. The publicity surrounding Russell was absolutely centered on her boobs. But the message wasn't about boobs. It was about patriotism. Birdwell came up with the idea of bringing a mathematician to a censorship board hearing and having him measure the exposed portions of Jane Russell's breasts in The Outlaw and compare them to the measurements of other actresses' visible boobage in other movies. At the end of that appeal, Hughes was asked to make just three cuts, down from the 108 cuts originally requested. Still, Hughes refused. 
But then a year passed, a year of incredible stress, in which Hughes seemed to start losing his grip on reality. There were his war contracts and the impossible schedule he had agreed to on the Spruce Goose, knowing full well he'd never be able to make it, which he didn't. And not only was he unable to be faithful to the ironically named Faith, but he seemed to court disaster by blatantly pursuing other, far more famous women. In short, in 1943, Howard Hughes was doing a lot of things that didn't make much sense. Suddenly deciding to capitulate to the censors so that he could release the outlaw was just one of them. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano, who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. As he had done with previous films, Hughes held the premiere of The Outlaw in San Francisco so that he could turn it into a junket for the Hollywood press, flying them up, putting them up in swanky hotel suites, footing the bill for rich food and booze and long-distance calls. Across the street from the theater, Hughes put up a billboard featuring a reclining Russell and the headline, Sex Has Not Been Rationed. This was scandalous, and when an aunt of Jane saw it, she demanded to see Hughes, to whom she protested that it wasn't right to, quote, sell my niece as though she was some cheap stripper. To which Hughes responded, Well, I can't very well sell her like Shirley Temple. The aunt found this to be a pretty persuasive argument. The outlaw got terrible reviews. But the critics couldn't stop what Russell Birdwell had started. The movie sold out for nine straight weeks in San Francisco, and Jane was required to stay in town as long as it played because Hughes had insisted that she do a live bit with a comic on stage before every screening. Hughes then wanted her to travel on a whistle-stop tour to do the same as the movie opened around the country. But it had started to become a drag. The Catholic Church was threatening to excommunicate anyone who so much as saw the movie, and churches of all denominations were placing the supposedly wanton Jane Russell at the center of their sermons, apparently unaware of the actress's deep feeling for the Lord off-screen. In order to get any time off, Jane had to essentially sign her freedom away to Hughes. She went back to L.A. and told Robert Waterfield that she wanted to get married. That weekend. In Vegas. You do not say no to Jane Russell and Robert Waterfield begrudgingly agreed to become her husband. And then, without any explanation, Hughes pulled the outlaw from exhibition, 
canceling the Whistle Stop tour, and putting the movie back in his vault. He devoted the next few years to trying to restore his status in aviation, somewhat disastrously. There were a couple of major crashes, including one in which Hughes suffered a serious head injury, which he refused to have treated, and in which a friend was killed. He blacked out behind the wheel of his car, hurting his head again when it went through the windshield. He regularly ignored wartime regulations to fly his planes wherever, whenever. A couple of times, he went missing. Hughes had started exhibiting what we would now recognize as obsessive-compulsive behavior, such as saying the same sentence 25 times, which was a more urgent and apparent version of insisting on endless movie takes or countless test flights. There was no way of diagnosing what Hughes had at that time, and certainly to the unsympathetic eye, he seemed insane. But the truly insane man doesn't know he's insane, and Howard Hughes knew there was something wrong with him. Anytime a friend or a coworker would point out something weird he had done, Hughes would put his head in his hands and say, Oh my God, I'm cracking up. Meanwhile, Jane Russell was still under contract to Hughes, but he had no work for her. When Jane's husband was sent to Fort Benning, Jane left Hollywood to go with him. They were broke, so she got a job at a local beauty parlor and then selling war bonds. The local papers were full of gossip about the movie star War Bride, who was still a huge wartime icon, even though her only movie had been pulled from theaters. Finally, in 1945, Five years after she had begun shooting The Outlaw, Hughes agreed to loan Russell out so she could appear in a film called The Young Widow. And when that film was finished, in 1946, Hughes managed to make a deal to bundle it with The Outlaw for distribution. A skywriter was sent above Pasadena to write the name of the film and a caricature of Jane's boobs. Newsweek called this publicity stunt literally a new height in vulgarity. And the censorship board responded to this kind of press by doing something they had never done. They rescinded the seal of approval they had given the outlaw in advance of his first premiere three years earlier. So Howard Hughes sued the MPAA and then offered the film to any theater that would dare to show the outlaw without the censorship seal. It was a gamble that worked. From Los Angeles to Chicago, every theater that booked the movie saw record attendance numbers. The long-delayed Whistle Stop tour was now back on. But Russell put her foot down. She would only go if they scrapped the bit with a comedian, which everybody knew was stupid. And instead, before the movie, she wanted to sing. Hughes threw up his hands and said, okay. Jane Russell would go on to sing in movies with Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, and most memorably, Marilyn Monroe. Long before I had ever heard of The Outlaw, I was a devoted Jane Russell fan because I knew her as Marilyn's ballsy, big-boned, brunette brains of the operation in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Here's a clip from a song she sings early in the film in which she's lamenting that an entire men's Olympic gymnastics team would rather work out than give her a workout. I like big muscles and red corpuscles. 
I like a beautiful hunk of man, but I'm no physical culture fan. Ain't there anyone here for love, sweet love? Jane Russell became almost as well known for her musical comedy chops as she was for her physique. And this happened because she made it happen. After waiting five years to be given permission to just make her second movie, when the door opened a crack, she pushed it open all the way. Two years later, Howard Hughes took control over RKO Studios. And Jane Russell became the queen bee of the lot, as Hughes's publicist Edith Lynch put it. Lynch also acknowledged that some of Russell's peers were scared shitless by her. Maybe they should have been more scared of Hughes. As studio chief, his primary interest was the female form. Hughes was accused by at least one of his employees of using RKO as his personal whorehouse. But the control he sought to exert went way beyond the usual casting couch bullshit. He straight up fired Barbara Belgetti's for being not up to his standards of attractiveness. He terminated Jane Greer's contract when she wouldn't leave or at least cheat on her husband with Hughes. And then he rehired her when he needed an actress to cast opposite a post-drug bust Robert Mitchum in The Big Steel. Hughes would draw up schematics to send to the makeup department as a reference to how he wanted Gene Simmons's lips to look. Simmons's future husband, Stuart Granger, would later claim that his wife became so frustrated with Hughes that the couple came up with a foolproof plot to murder him, which they were apparently too afraid to actually enact. Jane Russell was the only actor under personal contract to Hughes that he routinely allowed to make movies for other producers and studios. That's how Howard Hawks got her for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It seems like Hughes didn't have to worry about letting Russell go because she always came back to him. She was maybe the only woman in his life who was never intimidated by him, but also didn't act superior to him. She was a witness to a lot of his nutty behavior, but she never treated him like he was a nut. So why did they never fall in love? Russell said that Hughes simply wasn't her type. And it seems like he hardly gave her the hard sell. He'd call or visit her late at night, but he only seemed to ever want to talk. She claimed he only really ever made a move on her once, contriving to lure her into his bedroom at the end of a drunken house party. Jane literally kicked him out of bed that night in 1948, but there were apparently no hard feelings. Her partnership with him at RKO began just a few months later. Other studio moguls might have demanded that actresses sleep with them to ensure their job security. Always one to do it his own way, Hughes's loyalty to Jane Russell seems to be rooted in the fact that she wouldn't sleep with him. Hughes funneled his obsession with Russell's body into its presentation on screen. Hughes brought the great Josef von Sternberg out of exile to direct Russell and Mitchum in Macau, and then he sent the great director a single-spaced four-page memo about Russell's breasts. The contour of the breasts, their tendency to appear too flat or too round, and thus the necessity of building some kind of artificial nipple point into her dresses. 
but it was important to use caution because if her dresses were made from the wrong kind of fabric, it might look as though she had, in fact, multiple nipples, which of course would not do. Hughes also put his signature stamp on Russell's next teaming with Mitchum, his kind of woman. And by stamp, I mean that Hughes figured out a way to drag production out for more than a year. Then he put Russell in a pretty shocking bikini in a movie called The French Line and had the film shot with a striptease sequence in 3D so that his star would really pop off the screen. The film was flatly rejected by the censors, again for breast exposure. This and the same year Playboy debuted with Russell's one-time co-star Marilyn Monroe fully exposed inside. At this point, Hughes was desperate to save the struggling RKO, and he decided to release the French line anyway. The first time a studio film would break the covenant of the production code since the censorship office was established in 1934. The French line couldn't save RKO, but that wasn't Jane Russell's fault, and Hughes knew it. When Hughes' RKO experiment came to an end in 1955, Hughes signed Russell to a 20-year personal contract worth $1 million. She'd make $1,000 a week, no matter how much she worked. And in fact, she sometimes went years without making a movie. During those years, her personal life got harder. After 25 years, his infidelity and mutual alcoholism wrecked her marriage to Robert Waterfield, with whom she had adopted three kids. After their divorce, Jane took two more husbands, both of whom widowed her. After her third husband's death, Jane's drinking got really bad, and her kids forced her into rehab on her 79th birthday. As she got older, she became increasingly set in her ways— She had long been a proud Christian, even starting a club called the Hollywood Christian Group and hosting Bible studies at her house. And after her terribly botched abortion, which had left her sterile, she had become fiercely, unapologetically pro-life. But by 2003, Jane described herself as, quote, a teetotal, mean-spirited, right-wing, narrow-minded, conservative Christian bigot, but not a racist. She died in 2011. Jane Russell's professional association with Howard Hughes lasted longer than any of his romances or marriages, but the outlaw may have been their most significant collaboration. Nearly a generation earlier, Hughes's discovery of Jean Harlow and his shaping of her as the platinum blonde bombshell had inaugurated the idea of a movie star whose persona combined sex with prosperity and military virility. That was great, but that was during peacetime. So as an icon of Americana, there was only so far Harlow could go. With Jane Russell, Hughes' timing was much better. She became the face, or maybe more accurately, the body, of what GIs were fighting for in World War II. And through her, during a time when he couldn't seem to get out of his own way when it came to aviation, Hughes was able to mount what was arguably his greatest contribution to the Second World War. It might have been soft power, but it worked. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth, that's me, and Howard Hughes was played by Noah Segan. 
You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. And please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Started. Still, I can't get started with you. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.